After they had proclaimed the good news in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. So we're not given a lot of details of what happened to Derby, and the, but the implication is it was not as eventful or exciting as the previous cities. For whatever reason, the hostility was not as great, and so they preached there, they won many converts, and then they circled back and started going back through all the cities again, Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and that kind of stuff, which means they feel like it's safe enough to go back. So this communicates two things primarily to us as they loop back through these cities. One, they feel like it's safe enough. Maybe the Jews have moved on. They were only there to stir people up. They weren't there to like put down roots and actually teach the people and help them have better lives because why would we actually help people? We're just interested in getting Paul killed. They weren't there for that reason, so they, maybe they probably moved on. And the other reason that Paul's looping back through is they have won many converts. Despite the opposition, despite the threats to their life, despite the, 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 the stirring the hornet's nest that the Jews have done, they have won many converts. And once again, like I mentioned earlier, Paul is primarily interested in not just people coming to Christ, but people being discipled and strengthened in their understanding of the word, of who Christ is, the spirit, and their relationship and connection to them, and so that they can be strengthened. Paul's looping back through these cities in order to disciple them, and it literally says they strengthen the spirits or the lives of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith, saying we must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. That's interesting. Paul's not saying you have to enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions, but this is just the way life is going to be. God uses suffering in order to disciple you and train you and refine you, and, and that's pretty much the main focus of all First Peter. Paul begins to preach this, and pray what he's doing here is to encourage them, don't chuck the faith just because it's become physically hard and it's bringing persecution. In some ways, Christianity makes your life much better. The burden and the yoke of Christ is easy and light. The peace and the joy and the hope that passes all understanding can only be found in Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the, the, the sense of understanding and intimate relationship with God is greater than anything that you can ever find with any other being. But in another sense, Christianity makes your life a lot harder. There's a lot of persecutions that come. Uh, a lot of rejections that you're going to experience from society and that kind of stuff. And, and we, we need to fully embrace that life is going to be difficult. And this is a hard one for us as Americans. Um, it's been comfortable. I like the comfort. I've already mentioned this before. With three daughters, I don't want it to go away. Okay? Um, as a parent, we all know that's really scary. Okay? And so, but the reality is, that's not what most of history has had for Christians. And that's not what most Christians have experienced in other parts of the world. We are the minority in history and geography of experiencing a relatively sense of comfort. And so what Paul is saying is this is what it's going to bring. But there's an Australian guy by the name of Ray Comfort who has like a 180 ministry. And he uses this analogy that I think is just so great. And he says, uh, one of the reasons that a lot of people are chucking um, the Christian faith, especially like kids as they grow up and go to college and they don't come back, is it's not because, like I mentioned before, we've just been so focused on winning their souls over and not discipling them. But it's also we've preached this um, comfortable gospel, a gospel of just, you're going to notice this now. 
But there are so many times when you go to churches or you go to Christian websites or um, ministries or programs or um, conferences or whatever, every time they want to display the Christian life, the most popular image that is used in Christianity is on top of a mountain with a beautiful sunset going like this with their hands up in the air. It's like this is the embodiment of the Christian life. That is not the embodiment of Christian life. And it is used so often. Now, there's a time and a place for it because that is a part of it. But it it is used so often. It's just like, that's. there's a few things that my wife and I stab each other in the elbows for. And it's that. It's also when people pray where two are gathered or more. There are Jesus also. And then in movies, it's whenever people say, I promise everything will work out. And it's also follow your heart. So those things just like grab our attention like this is a lie. That's the Christian life. The problem is we've sold that. Yet we're not under physical persecution, but we're the most depressed, suicidal countries in the entire world. Oh, no, not the, but up there. And we have lots of problems, and Christianity doesn't always bring a happy-go-lucky life. And so Ray Comfort uses this analogy. If you tell them that the Christianity is a, a parachute, and you put it on them, and they get on the airplane, and you tell them you need this in order to, to make your life comfortable on the plane, well, a parachute's not going to make your life comfortable. You're going to put it on, and it's going to make you bend over a lot. You're not going to be comfortable. Your face is going to be in the seat. The kid in front of you is going to be, like, slamming. When the stewardess dumps their coffee on you by accident, it's going to be a reminder why this is uncomfortable. People are going to laugh at you. And eventually you're going to say, why am I doing this? There's no benefit to this. And you're going to chuck it. And then the plane crashes. But if you tell them, this plane is going to crash, the world system that you've bought into will crash and burn eventually. The, the things that you've bought into will crash. The things that you've put your hope and peace and sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, they will fail you and they will burn up like the grass of the fields. But this plane is going down. It's going to crash and burn and leave a greasy, greasy stain. And the only thing that will help you survive is this parachute. And when they put the parachute on, when they're uncomfortable, it's just going to reinforce the fact that this world is not going to bring them comfort. When the, when the coffee is spilled on them, it's just going to reinforce all the more reason why they need the parachute. When people make fun of them, and they're going to cling to it tighter and tighter and tighter and hold on to it even more desperately because this parachute is the only thing that brings them comfort because it's promised to bring you comfort and a means of salvation to escape the uncomfortableness and the death of the world, not a promise to make your life comfortable and to make everything happy-go-lucky. And this is what Paul is preaching right now. You might be tempted to chuck the gospel because now this city has turned against you like it's turned against us. But was your life really that much better before the gospel? Right? We were just here at Iconium, and you were so freaked out that you were going to get punished by Zeus and Hermes again that you were just desperately throwing sacrifices at us. Not out of love, but out of please don't kill me. Do you really want that life again? And this is what Paul is enforcing. And this is what we need to realize is when you try things on your own, we all do even as Christians, the question you need to ask yourself is, so how's that been working out for you? Um, Because only when we lean into Christ and embrace him is that going to be true. Yes, there's some weaknesses to that analogy of the parachute, but analogies only stand on three legs. So the point is that we need to preach a gospel 
that not only disciples people and trains them to know God and to embrace Him, and that requires going through the Word of God over and over and over again. The only way that you can be and think and feel and know and experience God is if you're constantly cycling through the Word and praying over and over again. Because whatever goes into you is what is going to become a part of you. And the other thing is we need to teach that the gospel is contentment and joy and peace and hope and love and satisfaction in the midst of all the brokenness and the persecution and the trials. And not a magic wand to help you escape it. To help you escape it. That's called medication and coping mechanisms. So, And Christianity is not that. Christianity is not that. And so this is what Paul is reinforcing with them as it goes back. Discipleship and cling to Christ all the more. And whatever you've experienced now negatively because of Christ is nothing compared to what you're experiencing negatively before Christ. And that's temporary. And that's where the whole book of Revelation kicks in. The Revelation is the, 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 one of the major points is for a time. For a time. Because eventually Christ is going to come back and make all things new. Verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in the various churches with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the protection of the Lord to whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came into um, Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. This is very important. With fasting and prayer, they found respected people and appointed them as elders. They did not leave them without strong, committed leaders to continue the discipleship. This is not a knock against Billy Graham. Billy Graham was an amazing man of God. And he did a lot of good. But this is what Billy Graham has said with his own mouth. He has a question now. I know when you get older, you begin to question like how much of a difference you made, that kind of stuff. And I know I'm not old yet. Um, but I've been teaching long enough to wonder how much of an impact I've actually really made sometimes when you hear about future journeys of people. And I know that's true, and I know some of that can be chalked up to it. But he's also a very intelligent man who's doing a lot of evaluation, and there's good weight here. And one of the questions he's asked himself is that many people had truly come to Christ during all his revivals. Why is America not different? And that's a legitimate question. And one of the things that he has found as he has reflected on that, and not just sadness and depression reflection, but serious like looking into things and talking to people kind of reflection, is he stated with his own mouth that the one thing that he really failed big time on was he never really made sure that people had churches when he left. He never made sure that discipleship was happening when they left the cities. He came in. And he preached the gospel. And people legitimately were attracted to that. And they, they, they wanted it. And whether they really did or not, they embraced it. And so they wanted it. But that's the other argument that Hebrews is making. is just because you hear it and say yes, doesn't mean you're really truly accepting it. But, and they, they, they had them fill out cards. And they, they, they joined them with local churches. And then, then they asked local churches. They sent all those cards of the people who accepted Christ to local churches. But one of the things that he found in years going back is that they never followed up with the local churches. 
they never once asked, was the local church a healthy local church? What, did it have discipleship? Did they actually reach out to those people? And he found that that was not true in a lot of cases. There's a lot of churches that were not healthy and they were not strong. They were sending these cards to. There was a lot of them that did not really follow up in a real, like, diehard, committed way. And there were some of the churches were not great in discipleship. And that was one of the things that you feel like he failed, failed him miserably is he just assumed they're Christian churches. And there would be a place for them. And I think now in hindsight, we know that just because you're a church doesn't mean things are solid. And, and, uh, and that was one of the great failures of his ministry in his own mouth, in his own words, in his own evaluation. And that says something powerful. This is what Paul is doing. He is making sure that they have people that can lead them. Now, you're, I know you might be thinking like, where are they getting the elders? They all just accepted Christ like in the last few months, right? Just because they accepted Christ doesn't mean that there weren't strong, respectable, wise people who were not Christians. Most likely, they were already elders or already established in the communities and the neighborhood. There are lots of wise non-believers who have a good sense of what is right and wrong or have a good sense of the wise direction to lead people. And there's lots of people who have been able to watch human nature Lots of older people who've been around for a long time and they've watched a lot of people over the years and they've, they've made really good, wise observations about what people are like. And when people are like this, don't do that because you're wasting your time and you should wait here, did it right? All these things. And you've just been observant of human behavior. And you don't have to be a believer to have that wisdom. Jesus says we should be as wise as serpents, gentle as the doves, and we should learn from the world. And he, even when it came to handling money, he was very critical of how believers handle money, and the world was much wiser in that sense. The idea is Paul's probably finding these elders, the ones that are actually truly converted, the ones that the Holy Spirit's truly working in and changing their sense of morality, but have proven themselves over the years as being wise, respectable leaders in their community, and people already looking to them. And so there's, he's putting them as leaders of this church in order to keep them go. And if they were already wise and had good directions before Christ, then how much more with the Holy Spirit? God doesn't often change everything in your life and say, well, you're no longer going to use the skills of carpentry anymore. I'm going to make you do something else now you're a Christian. You're no longer going to use the skill of business management now that you're a Christian. No, he takes that and sanctifies it. There is something from the world that they can offer. Remember, the world is corrupt, not evil in itself. Not evil in itself. Humans are corrupt and the image is defiled, not totally wicked and evil in itself. And that's what we need to remember. And so he made sure that when he left, that they had been strengthened, they had been encouraged, and that there was good discipleship and leadership programs happening when he walked away. And, Lord willing, and because we have the book, he will come back. He will come back again. And when he can't come back, he will send out other people. He will send out Titus and Timothy <laughs> out here and there. As Paul develops more converts and more people start gathering around him and following him, 
And then he'll start sending him out different places. There's many times in the third missionary journey, especially, that we're going to find out that Paul will leave and leave Timothy here and send Titus out there and leave Luke there. And then they'll all meet up like a month or two later in another city. And then they'll go a couple of cities. And then he'll leave one here and there and there. And then he'll go on. And he's always like leaving. The more and more converts he begins to gain, and the more people will say they want to follow him, the more people he can kind of leave behind and, and do and delegate. And we're going to see that happening. And so this is what Paul is doing. He is committed to discipleship, true discipleship. Now, that doesn't mean everything goes perfectly here because he's got to write a bunch of letters to the Corinthians. (laughs) But it means that he's making an effort. He's making an effort. And he's making sure you're not responsible for what happens in other people's lives and with the decisions they make and whether they do. But you are responsible for whether you've done your part whether you've equipped them or not or whether you just kind of moved on or what you said and that kind of stuff and this is what Paul is making sure of when they loop back through they get to Visidia and they start going to different cities and they hit slightly different cities on the way back of Perga and Natalia and you can see this on the map you'll notice the dotted line doesn't quite match up with the solid line anymore Um, Because they start going to different cities and they begin to do the same thing. But these cities are still really close to each other with the ones they already followed. So the idea is news is probably spread into these cities. And Paul now sees an open door to to continue the gospel there. Or perhaps a bunch of people there have begun to convert the neighboring cities. And Paul's coming to strengthen and elderize them. That's a word now. I'm going to use it. From there they sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported all the things that God had done with them and that he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. So they spent considerable time with the disciples. So they make their way all the way back to Antioch where they first launched off. And this is the end of the first missionary journey. Missionary slash discipleship journey. We don't know exactly how long it took them to complete their ministry or their missionary journey, but we know it's under a year. Under a year, this whole journey was that. Paul and Barnabas' faith, commitment, and Yahweh, despite the opposition and persecution they experienced, is evident in these accounts. There are two major things that allowed Paul and Barnabas to persevere. First, is that they truly believed that Yahweh and the eternal life he had given them through Jesus and offered to others was far greater than any harm that could be inflicted upon them. What allows you to keep facing persecution from city to city to city? What allows you to stay there while people are persecuting you? What allows you to go back to that city? Not allows you. What possesses you to go back to that city after they wreak havoc, after they beat you with an inch of your life? Paul believed and Barnabas believed that the power found in Christ was far greater than anything the world could do to them. That what God had to offer these people was far greater than anything that the people could do to them. I think I mentioned this before that one of the secrets to overcoming fears is leverage a greater fear over it. Right? I'm kind of afraid of jumping into traffic and getting hit by a car. That's a very good, healthy fear. But if my daughter is in the middle of the street about ready to get hit in a car, what I fear even greater than that is her life. 
And so all of a sudden the fear of being hit, where normally you'd be like, I'm not walking out into that street. The fear of losing her becomes far greater and overrides that other fear. And what Paul fears more than anything is these people being lost. The other thing is when you trust in a greater power. What allows you to stand up against a great power and a great force that's opposing you? If it's only you, then run away. But if you have a greater power, greater is he who is in you than he is in the world, then my dad can beat up your dad, so to speak. And no, this isn't a playground fight, but it's the idea that God can get me through this. God can get me through this. And that's the idea. And by my dad is greater than yours and can beat yours up. We're talking about the demonic world, not just humans. In that sense, it is a playground fight because that's exactly what God did in the plagues. He went on the Egyptian playground, found the biggest and baddest bullies, and picked a fight with them and knocked their teeth out. And so he will do that with gods. He does not do that with humans. That we tend to want to fight back at humans. And we just want to pound them or, or tell them how we really think, right? But God does that with the demonic world, not with humans. Because we are enslaved by the demonic world. And if only we knew what they were doing to us. This is what he does. Second is that their desire that the Jewish and Gentiles know Yahweh in the light that he offered them allowed them to pursue the people. He loved them. He loved them. I was watching this documentary of the underground Chinese church a few years ago. And they're under tremendous persecution. Um, not every single part of China and there's all levels of different kind of Christian churches in China too. Some are state run and others are really truly Christian and underground. Um, but I was just blown away. I was much younger back then so that this kind of just didn't make sense to me. <laughs> Why wouldn't you just hide? Hide, hide, hide. But they would go back out of their underground churches and go out there and risk persecution. And, and I was just like, why? Um, and they said they love the Chinese people. They were driven by a love for the Chinese people, their people. They hated their government. They were not nationalist. They, they, they had not pledged their allegiance to the Chinese state in any kind of way. They did not believe it, but they loved the people. They loved the people. And, and they were able to separate the actions of the government and the people from who the people were themselves. And, and this, this, this is what's driving Paul and Barnabas. Tenhill Ten says this, Acts 13 and 14 presents a representative picture of Paul's mission and includes many themes that we will encounter again. He preaches first to the Jewish synagogues, but turns to the Gentiles when the synagogue preaching is no longer possible. He announces the one God to the Gentiles who have no contact with the Jewish monotheism. He repeatedly encounters persecution and moves on when necessary, but he does not abandon his mission. He works signs and wonders. He strengthens new churches in this mission. Paul is fulfilling the Lord's prophecy that he would bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel must suffer for my name. This is a model. We're not to do exactly this way that Paul and Barnabas did, but there's a model of principles, themes, ideas of where it are to be implemented. There's a reason why the first church flourished with all of its problems, 
with all of its immorality that begin to creep in from the pagan way of thinking, with all of its disputes. There were probably denominations too. They didn't come up with the really great names like we do today, but there were splits and denominations and that kind of stuff. And yet, despite that, it grew and it thrived and it grew at an incredible rate because certain principles were being implemented by the leading of the Holy Spirit. But remember, Luke's focus is not on Paul and Barnabas. It's not on Paul and Barnabas. Rather, he was careful to record Yahweh's initiative in this evangelistic mission. Paul and Barnabas have been extremely successful, but they were careful to always give Yahweh credit. They weren't looking for names on buildings after they died. They were always giving credit to Yahweh. And they were always quick to say, no, 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 it's not us. Stop bowing down. It's him. They were always speaking. They were never putting the focus on themselves in any kind of a way. So that is the end of the first missionary journey.